Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Starship Troopers. In the year 2020, just anyone can be a citizen. But a real citizen serves his country. It's still a volunteer service in the, in the States. There are still a few countries that have, um, you've you got you to join, you got to be a citizen. South well, Korea, Australia, I think. I, I always heard Americans talking about the draft even in my lifetime. So when did they get rid of that? Uh, after Vietnam. Okay. Because, like, yeah. For, oh, my dad. Like, you, all these men's rights activist dweebuses bring it up like it's still a thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's a volunteer military. You've, you've joined it on, uh, on your own. But you did not join the military you're going to see in today's movie, which is Starship Troopers. That's a... It will. Is it or is it not an entirely different kind of military? I guess we'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sanctuary. There, I just said it all. It's better that way, right? I think so. Yeah, okay. We'll work it out. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, okay, 1997, yes. Because uh, I, I was a senior in high school. Kind of interesting timing for watching this one for me. Yeah, I think. <laughs> like, I think I actually saw it, like, the summer after finishing high school. So I had my graduation and went straight in and saw this ridiculous in the best way thing, I should say. Um, and I got a little ahead of myself there because we do have a guest today. This is a film that has some deep layers to get into. And we have a journalist, author, and podcaster. He gets into... Hollywood security services, the CIA, all that kind of spy stuff. Uh, he's written for, well, geez, I'm looking at the list here, like almost everything. Uh, done writing and research for The Mirror, for Salon, The Independent. And um, very pertinent today, has co-written a book called National Security Cinema. So hello, Tom Secker. Hi, guys. Good to be talking to you. Yeah, um, I, I guess I'll just start by asking how did you sort of get into the um, national security bent on uh, writing and, and your interests? Well, I've always been one of those people who's been fascinated by spies and to some extent the military, but more the intelligence services and, you know, the whole secret agent covert operative world. And I guess... I mean, I was always a fan of spy books and films when I was a kid, and I often wondered, you know, how realistic is this, or how much of a hand did the real intelligence agencies and real spies have in contributing to this genre and shaping it and using it as a kind of representation for them, whether as a realistic representation or a unrealistic one because they're trying to convince people of something. And that's been a question that's 
bothered me or at least been on my mind for a long, long time, as long as I can remember, really. And around seven or eight years ago, I guess, I really started to take this quite seriously and started investigating it in quite a lot of depth and discovered that it was kind of so much bigger and so much more elaborate than I ever could have really thought possible. And so since then, I've just kind of kept going with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, you you sent me the book. I read it. I, I I love reading that sort of thing. Just you know, looking at movies from different angles, and I, I did appreciate how um, you did have a very much of a journalistic hand there. I've I've read some books that just kind of you know fall off the cliff, right? But this one is just like this happens. It's you know not necessarily good bad, but you should recognize the magic trick for what it is, basically. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, we had all this information, basically. I'd been filing all of these FOIA requests and gathering other materials from other places. And Matt, a longtime kind of research partner or at least collaborator, he said, we should really put this into a book. There hasn't been a recent book covering this topic at all. And we've got all of this new information. So let's just do it and see what happens. And as it, as it turned out, for a little self-published book, it really took off. I mean, we've sold thousands of copies. It's resulted in lots of media attention and all sorts. And just in general, there is now more media discussion of these sorts of things. So um, like I say, wherever on the spectrum you are, I think it's better for people to be informed about the films that they're watching and understanding the kind of forces behind them and how they've been shaped and influenced. And so all of that's got to be a good thing, as far as I'm concerned anyway. <laughs> right. But yeah, we're going to plunge right on into Starship Troopers, which uh, having gotten to your chapter there is a bit of a weird outlier. Um, Luke, you were too young to see this movie when it came out. Yeah, I remember this being a big release. And I remember everyone talking about it, and you always had those few kids at school who'd seen the movie. Um, but this was at the point where I I was no longer in a position where my grandmother could show me 18-rated films without my mum finding out. Um, I, th I probably could have watched this one with my uncle, but for whatever reason, I think I had it in my head at the time that it was either that it was a horror movie or that it was a boring, talky movie that didn't really have as much action as it pretended to. And for whatever reason, I was never interested in watching it as a kid. And I thought I must have seen it in the intervening years. But when I watched it last night, it turns out, no, I think that's the first time I've seen this film. Oh, that that must have been a kind of a heavy one for you. I mean, not heavy as in, like, dramatic, but just like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> yeah, I know. It turns out I fucking love this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great, though. And uh, when I got on uh, email with Tom, I was like, yes, Starship Troopers! So, yeah, no, no one really complains with that in the end. <laughs> like I said, for me, um, I caught it, you know, right at the age of the young recruit, so, you know, it kind of hit me in that way. But I, I went in with high school buds, or probably music buds, to be honest, but... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we've been watching a lot of Simpsons, so the satire did not get past us when we saw it. And um, notoriously, when it came out, the reviews for this were horrible. People, like, took it seriously, like, like as a hackneyed war film. It's like, you're miss how, how can you miss that? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I've always kind of loved this. Well, I guess I was already into Verhoeven when, you know, I first saw this. But, uh, uh, Tom, how about for you? Where did you first come across this one? Well... When it first came out, I didn't actually see it in the cinema because I saw the trailer and it kind of looked like a schlocky space movie, war movie. It kind of looked also a bit like a cross between Aliens and Saved by the Bell. And 
uh, though I love both of those, um, I never thought of them as being a good combination, if you know what I mean. And I just thought, I didn't realise what sort of movie it was. I'd already seen, I was, I don't know, only about 15 when this film came out, but I'd already seen a couple of Verhoeven films. I'd seen Total Recall and Robocop a number of times and loved them. I didn't realise this was a Verhoeven, Ed Neumeyer film. So I just kind of dismissed it. And then a friend of mine at school, a girl I went to school with, she'd seen it like uh, on the the half term or whatever the break from school um and was telling me about it and i was kind of dismissing and you know i'm not interested in this stupid dumb space war movie and she told me no 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 you have to see it it's got a lot more going on than that and she thought i'd really like it and so then when it came out on rental uh i and a friend watched it and i fell in love with it instantly um i absolutely adore this movie as i do pretty much all of verhoven's work and since then, I must have seen this film 40, 50 times. I don't know. I, I can't count however many times I've seen it, but it's an awful lot. So while I have some similarity with uh, uh, with Luke, with your experience, um, in that my initial impression of this film was not the film that I ended up watching, I have seen it loads and loads of times. I know this film very, very well. Oh, sorry, I got a little bit of drop out there, uh, but we can we can probably work that out in a moment but uh i guess really quick we'll just give a quick rundown of the story luke are you ready for that uh kind of i'm just gonna edit the wikipedia one as i read so it might be a bit chunky (laughs) okay i I see something in my in my message so I, i guess you're reading something let's go for it In the 23rd century, humans share the galaxy with bugs. The bugs appear to be little more than savage killing machines, though perhaps they are more intelligent than it appears. In the United Citizen Federation, citizenship is earned by performing activities such as military service, which grants individuals with the basic rights and opportunities which we take for granted. After graduating from high school in Buenos Aires, Johnny Rico, his girlfriend Carmen Ibanez, and his psychic best friend Carl Jenkins enlist in the Federal Service, despite Riku's lefty-lib parents' disapproval. Carmen becomes a spaceship pilot, while Carl joins military intelligence. Riku enlists in the Mobile Infantry, along with Isabel Dizzy Flores, his fellow ex-student who blatantly wants to bang him. In Mobile Infantry training, Career Sergeant Zim ruthlessly trains the recruits. Riku befriends fellow cadet Ace Lentler, Ace Levy, and is later promoted to squad leader. However, he is then dumped by Carmen and gets a cadet killed, resulting in a whipping and almost leaving the military. But just as he's walking out, Buenos Aires is obliterated by an asteroid launched by the bugs. An invasion force is deployed to Klendathu, the Arachnid's home planet, but the operation is a total disaster, and a hundred thousand die in one hour. The military redesigns their plans and Rico is recruited by the Roughnecks led by his old teacher Lieutenant Jean is it Rakchek? Rakchek? Michael Ironside! (laughs) He quickly gains the respect of his squad and climbs through the ranks as the Roughnecks kill bug after bug after bug. They are sent to Planet P 
where they encounter an outpost that has been devastated by bugs. But it's a trap! It turns out there's a brain bug on this planet, and a new operation is launched to capture it. Most of Rico's friends die, but he, Carmen, and Levy escape with the brain bug, caught by the new private Zim. All right. I, I thought you were just going to go for the, the straight to the NPH uh, reference. And you didn't go Carl. You went for his last name, too. That was amazing. <laughs> That's because I'm reading it from Wikipedia. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I had no idea Neil Patrick Harris was in this film. And it blew my mind when I saw him. And I could not take him seriously in this role. Well, this was like almost directly after Doogie Howser as well. You know, he's even closer to that. Well, uh, see, I, I'm not that familiar with Doogie Howser, but I've watched a lot of How I Met Your Mother. And when he strolls up at the end and it's like full SS uniform and he's just this baby-faced Barney Stinson, I couldn't really, couldn't quite do it. Everyone's doing their job, I guess. Um, yeah, it, it's who's act- cheesy, but it's not in the like, B-movie bad acting cheesy. It's just in the playing everything extremely literally, very earnest, way too handsome actors kind of cheesy. Maybe that's where Casper, Casper Van Diem, if I'm saying that right. Um, but I guess, I think I think people recognize his face, but he never really took off as a major dude, again, with the, um, with the Aaron Eckhart syndrome. He looks like Dolph Lundgren 2.0. <laughs> Yeah, I can go for that. Uh, yeah, Michael Ironside, we, we always like to see him. Where do we see him last? We just saw him in something. Yeah, he's, uh, well, we did um, Total Recall not that long ago. Yeah, that wasn't too long ago, so I'm sure we would have had a, a few words there. And then also uh, um, Dean Norris, the guy from Breaking Bad who keeps showing up, he's in here again as well. So it's got all of our favorites. Yeah, I, I need to get back to the Breaking Bad, which is literally sitting next to me in a complete set. So, um, <laughs> but it's well, it's at the bottom of a pile. <laughs> um, Tom, how the acting this one hit you the first time you saw it? Oh, like you, uh, I, I think it's very much it's deliberately cheesy. It's deliberately it's designed almost like that of a TV movie. The opening of this film is very much like a TV movie. There's a lot of quite cheap-looking sets, and there's very sort of uh, neutral lighting that it's not natural lighting at all. It looks like a TV set, um, and the acting is is very much in that mold of I don't know Beverly Hills 90210, something like that. In that, it's all of these characters are fundamentally shallow. And they were all cast, with the exception maybe of Michael Ironside, who is something of a Verhoeven favourite. Um, they were all cast because they've got that kind of face that says the lights are on, but no, nothing's home. There's nobody home. <laughs> they all seem a little bit vacant and a little bit vapid. Um, and I'm not sure whether the actors themselves realised this or whether they were just, you know, a bunch of young people who were offered the chance of being in this blockbuster Sony movie and who's going to turn that down and who who doesn't want to work with Paul Verhoeven. Um, but there is that slight problem. I, I did find myself wondering 
were these actors aware that their performances were actually quite bad in a way, but that was entirely deliberate? Because none of these people really went on to have massive careers. I mean, I know this was kind of when Denise Richards was ascending to the height that she ascended to, but she was never that big a star. She never lasted very long, and she's probably the biggest name in this film, apart from Michael Ironside, obviously, because he's actually quite widely respected as an actor. Um, yeah, I think it's, for her, it's like this and Mean Girls, basically. Is it Mean she, Girls? She was in a James Bond movie as well, but not ver- not very memorably. <laughs> so they, they all have those faces which I do recognise, but I couldn't quite figure out where I recognise them from. Yeah, yeah. They're all people who have been in other things and have some kind of profile, but there's no start. No one. This wasn't the making of anyone. <laughs> this movie, and I think that's partly down to the fact that, that, like I say, they were picked in part because of the way that they looked, and they look a bit kind of dim and shallow. And so anyone watching this film wouldn't think, "Oh yeah, yeah, let's take them and stick them in our movie," because <laughs> it just wouldn't have worked. Right. And then also the fact that it didn't quite take off when it first came out as well it only only just made its budget back apparently so uh, I don't know as I recall it was in the top at least 50 movies of that year I guess that isn't actually that high yeah. um, <laughs> how many movies come out of Hollywood in a year uh, That's a good I don't know <laughs> I don't know actually that's a good question <laughs> you threw that out and, it seemed, and suddenly I'm like, you're like oh, it's in the top and I was expecting like three Top five, maybe even top ten. Top fifty is. As I recall, though, it, I mean, it made more money. I could be wrong about this, but I did look up some stats a couple of weeks back, and I could be misremembering this completely. So forgive me, but I think it made more money than Austin Powers that came out the same year, and that was considered a pretty big success. A different sort of movie on a lower budget, of course, but nonetheless, it made some kind of money. Um, but especially with the reviews, the reviews for this, it sorry, cost a hundred million and made one hundred twenty. Okay, so it lost money. Yeah, ultimately. like I remember, it was it was like definitely on the radar. People saw it when it came out, but it was one. I think it was one of those like second week, like major drop off sort of things. <laughs> well, and like, the reviews were so terrible. For the most part, people either didn't get this movie or didn't like this movie, and so it didn't really encourage people to go watch it. Though saying that, it did inspire. Th- two sequels, at least one animated sequel on top of that, a whole bunch of merchandise and other spin-off stuff. Um, I don't know how successful any of those things were, but it had, even though it wasn't like a big commercial success at the box office, I think it had quite a lot of cultural resonance. I think it, the people who did see it and did like it, it very much lasted in their minds. They wanted to see more of this, if you like. So, yeah, it's definitely a name that people know. I think all of those sequels yeah. were straight-to-DVD sort of deals. I'm really interested to see them because part of me expects that I'm going to watch them and they're going to completely drop the satire. The second one isn't at all good. The second one is a right. fairly crap movie. The third one was written and directed by Ed Newmeyer, the guy who wrote RoboCop and Starship Troopers. Okay. And that is very much a satirical movie. It's not got a big budget. It doesn't look that great, but it's a... It came out in the mid-2000s, and it's kind of a wonderful satire of the War on Terror, but set in the world of Starship Troopers. Okay, I kind so of want to check those out. That's, that one's worth watching, certainly. The others, not so much. But just to briefly go back to the acting, um, the whole time I'm watching the film, I'm aware that it is satirical, and I'm not necessarily meant to take it all seriously. But nonetheless, I 
did kind of fall for all the emotional beats of this film. Like, you know, when it's like, we're angry at the bugs and we want to go to war, I'm like, yeah, go kill them bugs. And like, you know, the sad <laughs> moments kind of made me a little sad. And yeah, it just, it kind of, it does very cleverly have its cake and eat it. Because you know that, you know, all of this is ridiculous. But in the same way that I know Independence Day is ridiculous, but I still fall for it, I still kind of get caught up in the emotion as I'm watching the film. And that's that's the magic of filmmaking, I guess. But yeah, I mean, uh, we, we already mentioned Saved by the Bell. I guess Verhoeven must have been a fan of that show or something because he did the weirdest thing possible with Elizabeth Berkley and Showgirls. And then it's like he's just <laughs> creating this bizarro version of that show at the beginning of this, which is is, is great. So, um, but... Well, well, and Casper Van Dien does actually have a cameo in an episode of Saved by the Bell. Believe it or there not. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I did see some of the Q&A you sent me, and I guess um, the thing is there's like basically... Well, I, I'll save that for the, for the next segment i guess where we basically have like two layers to of this film and you know the acting is just on layer one where we do just get this goofy um kind of manipulative emotionally sort of drama going on like war drama yeah i mean like luke i think the the emotional beats of the overall plot are driven by they're not really driven by the war itself. They're driven by this romance quadrangle where you have Johnny initially being in love with Carmen, or at least with Carmen, but you sense their relationship isn't particularly deep. There isn't that much affection there. Dizzy is in love with Johnny. Carmen goes away and falls in love with, what's his name, Captain Cockblock. And um, th that sets up most of the emotional content of the movie. And that surprisingly works quite well. And, for example, when Dizzy dies in Johnny's arms, that's actually quite a dramatic moment. As absurd as it is that, you know, she's been skewered by this giant insect that's kind of, you know, punctured her lung or whatever, and she's bleeding out and there's blood pouring everywhere. That scene is still quite emotional and quite gripping. And in such an absurd and ridiculous movie, and a movie that's so self-consciously absurd and ridiculous, it's a little surprising that it has the emotional weight that it does. The, the love story, particularly Carmen and Johnny, um, I was reading the Wikipedia this morning. I remembered I had heard this before. Um, the test audiences in the studio were really unhappy with the story Paul Verhoeven was telling um, because in their eyes, uh, a woman couldn't love two men and a woman who chose her career over a man was a monster. And like... They thought Paul Verhoeven was ridiculous for letting her win and her live instead of Dizzy because she was a bad person because she chose her career. Well, I just went, it was slasher movie rules, right? All oh, right, yeah, the, the innocent one can live. But yeah, appar apparently um, they actually cut some scenes out. For example, at the end of the film, there was a scene where Johnny and Carmen kissed, but apparently that made her earlier betrayal even worse. Which is like, wow. <laughs> so the edits were all high school drama, basically. Yep, but um, <laughs> like Paul Verhoeven has always had this like quite feminist tendency. Even in RoboCop, the um, like he treats female officers and male officers completely equal. Um, and in both films, actually, he has the scene where they're all getting changed together. 
That's they weren't getting almost like here. a signature shot. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, the shower a bunch scene. of times that, as as far as he's concerned, men and women should be completely equal. So, yeah. partly one of the reasons. I mean, obviously there are other cinematic titillating reasons why you would have a group shower scene in two films but um he has said you know part of the point of having them you know be mixed like that is because he thinks not necessarily that men and women should shower together in great big groups but that they should be seen as equal and they should be equal and yeah he has that there are lots of good female characters in verhoven's movies um robocop sidekick in she's a great character and she isn't in any way dependent on him or you know she has her own trajectory her own agency she has her own arc in the movie um if you think of in total recall oh, i can't remember the character's name um but the the revolutionary on mars that mm. arnold schwarzenegger sort of gets together with she's quite a cool character you know she's got quite a lot going on and she actually does quite a lot of important stuff in that movie she's not just a you know female love interest at all in fact there isn't a straightforward female love interest i think in any of verhoven's movies most of the women in them are quite tough or at least uh you know in charge of their own lives making their own decisions and i i think that is a you know partly because that's how Verhoeven likes female characters to be. That's partly how he sees women. He has, quite often in interviews, he talks about his wife and how it was his wife who basically forced him to make Robocop in the first <laughs> place, that when he first read the script, he didn't like it and, you know, threw it away. And then his wife read it and said, no, no, there's a lot more going on here. There's more layers here. This is a film that you could make and make well. And that he took another look at it and it was her that convinced him, you know, there's a movie here. So without his wife, you know, maybe Verhoeven never would have really had a Hollywood career. So we have a lot to be thankful to Mrs. Verhoeven for, I guess. There's a, there's a quote from him which I really like, where he said, uh, Americans get more upset about nudity than ultraviolence. I'm constantly amazed by that. I mean, I haven't seen any sex films in American film that are anything other than completely boring. A bare breast is more difficult to get through the censors than a body riddled with bullets. Just- I do remember... This shower scene being one of the more controversial aspects of this and not the uh, constant bug impaling. Yeah, I've, I've <laughs> just... always found that ridiculous. I used to watch 24 a lot. And Jack Bauer would, like, slaughter 30 men with, like, complete impunity. But then the camera would pan away when he starts kissing his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I guess starting to get into the national security thing, that's a 24 is one that must have some pretty intense influence. I I watched 24 when I was like, I guess, late teens. I think I were very interested to see how that show holds up because it is ridiculous. The The main message of that show is torture is okay if Jack Bauer does it. Yeah. To the yeah. Point, they had a season where he's on trial for all the torturing he does. And in the end, he gets away with it because he's such a goddamn American. <laughs> Ooh, uh, um, no, no, that, that, sh- that show is so pro-torture that uh, I think it was Antonin Scalia, a Supreme Court justice, actually cited it in defense of torture. He was actually talking about the show, saying, you know, because this is what it's like. You know, you've got a ticking clock. You've got this imminent terrorist attack. And the only way you can find out the information is, is through torturing oh, people. Didn't you know, he just say, like, on, like, just like on 24. Did he say there's a bomb what? taped to your baby or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of remember that quote now. God, oh, yeah. On the other hand, Starship Troopers is kind of a weird outlier from, um, you know, sort of from the the real Ura film, right? The one that the military really got into. Um, if I if I remember from the interview, it's basically 
like Sony's executives were changing so much, no one really noticed what they were making. Yeah, I, yeah. I heard that too. That's particularly ironic because these days it feels like Sony films are the ones with the most executive meddling. Sure, sure. They all feel like a, a, a studio committee movie. Like, you know, 16 different people have had their hands in this and said, oh, no, we need a, a bit more romance here and a bit more car chase there. And the whole thing just kind of collapses under its own mediocrity. Yeah, and it's ages since Sony have made a good movie. <laughs> Probably since the original Spider-Man trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm struggling to think of one recently. Yeah, I'm working I on I mean, it I liked too. Venom, but that was in spite of itself, not because it was actually good. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I quite liked Venom, yeah. But not because, yeah, like yeah, you say, not because it, it's a good movie, just because it's kind of an enjoyable piece of schlock. I yeah. think I just like Tom Hardy as the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, without him, yeah, without him, there isn't much movie. For 10,000 years, perched upon a desert outpost of sand, awaiting the rain dream of tears in vast sweeps of the whirlwind land, awoke in a long tunnel, high upon a floating disc, wrapped within a gauze of flannel. I guess this is one of those ones that really couldn't easily come out today, at least not with this flavour. I feel, yeah, I guess it wouldn't come out as like a big studio picture these days. I tried, What has come out recently that was like even remotely subversive? Like, again, on this kind of scale. Right, because I'm thinking of some of those like kind of schlocky retro horrors they've been putting out in a few years. Of course, you can do a horror on the cheap and do it old school much more than like a epic sci-fi space opera. So, Although, ironically... The Transformers films are much more subversive than people give them credit for. The fourth one is all about the fact that the CIA are all shits. <laughs> well, that was the only one that didn't have that didn't have American government support, so yeah. there may have been a bit more room in that one to do things. But like then that. again, yeah. that's also the one that tells you how great the Chinese military are. So I don't want to give it too it much support, credit. support from the Chinese government. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, like people are way more willing to point that out than they are the American equivalent. When a film has Chinese Chinese money in it, everyone is pointing it out. But when a mm-hmm. film has clearly been, you know, partially funded by the Pentagon, no one bats an eyelid. Yeah, it's like kind of like we can people notice that real time, mostly because oh, now they got we, you know when we got those when we have all those credits flashed at the beginning of the movie, there's always the. Um, the Chinese one that's like not as recognizable. Yeah. Right, okay, there. Usually and it's, it's Tencent. Like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just p- pondering on that question of subversive blockbusters. I guess you could say a couple of the Phase 2 Marvel films, um, Captain America Winter Soldier, a little, is yeah. not as subversive and certainly not as satirical. It's not as, you know, knowing and funny and winking at you as this film is. Um, the third Iron Man film is actually quite different to the first two in as much as it's lambasting the military industrial complex and kind of shows the war on terror to be this ludicrous shell game kind of Um, but then at the end of the film he wins because he has his own army of robots 
Exactly. <laughs> uh, they always return back to that. Uh, but ultimately, violence is the way to resolve conflict and solve problems. So there certainly isn't a $200 million blockbuster out there saying, actually, violence is horrible. And if we get more progressively more violent, we all end up as fascists. One of you is going to have to remind me of his name. But, um, oh, Neil Blomkamp. He's not quite top level budget, but he's been nope. making slightly more subversive big sci-fis. Generally on much smaller budgets, though. Yeah, he just makes them um, look like they have a big budget because he's a very good director. Yeah, yes. But... Yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you're saying. Certainly there are films out there that are, you know, in some way creative or subversive or even have some radical ideas in them. But there's very few that are being made for more than about $15 million. Whereas this was made for $100 million 23 years ago. So, But even then, it was only Verhoeven doing it. I think it is just he happened to get away with some stuff that other people didn't get away with. Pretty much. I mean, that's basically the thing now. He doesn't really make movies in Hollywood anymore because he can't get away with this anymore. Yeah, I know. I've got, got a lot of respect for him for that. He refused to. He had a lot of trouble on Hollow Man. Um, he wanted to make a more provocative movie about, you know, what would you do if you were invisible? But they had this whole problem with uh, the rights to the Invisible Man story being held by, uh, I think it was Universal. And so they couldn't really do too much with the character outside of the lab because that would infringe on copyright. So basically the whole story is set in one underground lab and that really restricted them. And he said that just kind of ruined the story for him. And he, he looking back at the movie, he was kind of ashamed of it and it felt it was com about nothing. So he just stopped making movies in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you read between the lines reviews. Starship Troopers horrible reviews. I'm like, I'm not gonna see that. Verhoeven, Hollow Man, I never saw because the reviews were like, oh, it's kind of okay, but it doesn't feel at all like a Verhoeven film. I was like, eh, not that interested. If if you're not having a strong reaction, then it's not a Verhoeven film. You got to either <laughs> be love it or hate it with these. Although amazingly, Universal did actually put out a pretty decent Invisible Man film. Um, when? But this Recently? year, yeah. Oh, this year. Oh, they put out this year. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was maybe the best film I saw this year. <laughs> yeah, I still still haven't made my theater return visit, but again, they haven't been showing any movies, so... <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, you made it out to... Look, how many movies have you made out to? Just Tenant? Is there anything else? Um, well, when our cinema first reopened, they were showing some older films, so I went and saw, like, Shin Godzilla and stuff. And actually... So just uh, Invisible Man didn't come out in Japan until a couple months ago, but in the UK it was in like January. Oh, but yeah, okay. Other than that, it's just been Tenet. I just threw my phone across the room. I'm too sleepy. <laughs> so here we are. Um, let's do a little. I guess we'll do a little bit talking about the design here, which is very cool. With um, a lot of it does still. I mean, the bugs obviously look very very digital on screen sometimes and they in, in a way that... a lot better than i was expecting though the effects in this film are pretty great oh mm. for the time they're great they've aged a little bit but it's like well whatever it's the late 90s <laughs> i mean there's a lot of late 90s films that don't look this good but i think i think it was smart enough to only use digital effects for things which you can do so spaceships and bugs there weren't any like human beings which were digital that i could see or anything like that no i think you're right all of those scenes on uh, in the invasion of Clandethu, when you have the great big, you know, cast of hundreds or thousands of troops running around on Clandethu fighting the bugs, I think they're all real people. I don't think any of that is, you know, CGI crowd. 
plug-in or whatever. They might have done a bit of the old film them twice in different locations things. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it didn't sure. seem like any of them were like, you know, computer game men. Mm. And then even whenever a bug picked a person up, it felt like they switched to puppets. I think they did, yeah. Or they put that big censored bar over it, which was very funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's just the end, isn't it? <laughs> oh, no, there's, the, there's the bit earlier on where it shows um, shows the bug killing the cow. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Well, that, that's all on the TV, right? So, oh, yeah, yeah. I just <laughs> found it for TV. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, um, um, it did that thing a lot of 90s stuff does where it correctly predicted that computers would be popular in the future, but it gave them, like, really retro interfaces. Mm. So the, yeah, like, I put in my notes that Windows 95 is giving people tattoos now. Like, the fact that they're using... Um, Basically, they're using internet news to fall down fascist rabbit holes was extremely accurate. But the fact that it looks like they're using, like, AOL is maybe not so much. I love that lettering, though. It's just so ridiculous, especially at the end with the, uh, you know, you. <laughs> yeah. Fight to the end, that sort, of, that sort of stuff. I mean, it's wonderfully cheesy, which I guess is most of this film, but cheesy with a, with a message. <laughs> Well, there were a couple of things on the on the technology design front that uh, stood out to me when I rewatched it. There is the um, the fact that they're sending when they're sending those visit video messages to each other, uh, particularly between Johnny and Carmen. They're sending them on Sony mini discs, like micro CDs. And you're thinking, in the future, could they not just email them or something? Um, I don't know. I don't know why they have to physically deliver these video messages. That just doesn't make much sense to me. So you're right. It's like they predict computers and video messages and all of those kinds of things, but they didn't think. Hang on, there'll be an internet. Um, I mean, there already was one in '97. So I'm a little, you know, they didn't foresee that much. Uh, the other thing is um, in the sequence where the asteroid hits the Roger Young, the ship that Carmen and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. her love interest are on. Um, and when they, you've got these very primitive graphics on the computer screens of showing like the gravity well that the asteroid is coming out of towards them and stuff like that. And it, it's, I, I do watch those sequences now and think they could have updated those. I'm kind of glad they didn't. Um, but, you know, for future releases, it wouldn't actually surprise me that much if they thought, no, this, this is actually one of the worst moments in the whole film because we have this kind of super technologized society, but their computers look like they're, they're running on BBC Basic. Yeah, I feel like no one like back in the 90s quite predicted how quickly computers were going to advance. No. Which is, you know, fair. It was new stuff. If I, if I was going to mm. give them the benefit of the doubt, I'd say that the military can't transmit their messages over the internet because it might be intercepted. And, and a CD in the post can't be? <laughs> Absolutely not. The postal service are 100% reliable. <laughs> They're all good citizens. I just, bring up, just bring up 90s Star Trek as well, where they have like an iPad and it's like, this, I, this pad contains a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might as well just have the book then. But yeah... yeah um, I know in 1997, 98, when I started university, it's still, I, I think it was the first time I ordered something online. That was still blowing my mind. So we still had a little bit of a, I guess, people definitely had not completely gotten their, their head around it. I know, yeah, this is probably one of the first films where I like, totally did like plumb down into the IMDB site as it was, you know, coming out. I try to remember what the first thing I ordered online was now. Probably an obscure Godzilla film. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can't remember, but I remember it was like from buy.com. It wasn't Amazon or something. It might have been like pre-Amazon, but yeah, just being, you know, because I'd always go searching for CDs and I was like, oh, now I can go online and just find anything. That's amazing. So, and here we are where we can have everything we want, which I guess they can't in the Star uh, Ship Troopers universe because they got to have those uh, Sony mini discs. I know what it was. It was a Nintendo belt from eBay and it never arrived and I'm still angry about it. <laughs> It could still arrive. Yeah, to like <laughs> the house that my parents lived in 15 years ago. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Someone else is walking around in my Nintendo Entertainment System belt. <laughs> I was just thinking one weird thing. Uh, we were talking about the, the displays on the ship just like not fitting now. I was thinking the original Alien, where they're even like way more low-tech computers, it kind of works better for some reason. Yeah, I think it's the fact that it it almost is what we have, but it didn't quite do it. Because in Alien, when it's just like the motion sensor, like, that feels like a clunky analog piece of kit. Whereas this feels like it's trying to be the kind of computers we have, it's just not quite doing it. Also, with Alien, you've got to remember, particularly with the first film, um, it is kind of a a clunky, worn-out ship that they're on. It's not supposed to represent the absolute kind of best technology that's available in this future society whereas on a warship in this society that's entirely devoted to war they should have the very very best tech of every in every sense and so it does stand out to think a little bit because of that that it doesn't quite fit in with the world around it whereas on alien it fits in better because yeah they would have slightly uh, to them old-fashioned computer systems if you know what i mean i could be wrong <laughs> yeah i mean it for oh i lost my point sorry <laughs> it just escaped my head completely <laughs> so okay so I'm gonna, yeah i go wasn't ahead. quite sure the spaceship scenes here is that all cg or are they models i really couldn't tell blend of both i think most it's mostly miniatures most of it's miniatures. Right. Like the big sequence where they're where you've got all the ships and they're surrounding Klendathu and all the drop ships are coming off. That's pretty much all miniatures with a bit of CGI for like the rocket boosters and stuff. Okay. Um I think I think the rest of it is all real objects. Yeah, I felt like I saw a lot of that like sort of late nice analog look, which I guess is kinda of coming back now, which is is nice is cool, but with, you know, better um um composite shots now because you can do that digitally so hmm. when we do it right now i guess we get we get the best of everything yeah well you remember that sam rockwell movie moon from i don't know seven eight years ago uh i think almost everything on that is done with miniatures there's very little cgi in that film and it looks great from what i remember yeah yeah i definitely enjoyed that one that is a I, yeah i think that was one of the first ones uh yeah David Bowie's son directing that too. That's always fun. But uh, <laughs> I do remember seeing that in the theater and uh, kind of being, wow. That's one of those movies I saw in the theater. I, I saw an article a few years ago, like, you know, great movies that you couldn't have never seen in a theater. And it had like Moon and Black Dynamite on the list. I'm like, I saw both of those in a theater. So can't always trust what you read. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure many people saw Black Dynamite in the cinema, though. Okay, I don't know what planet they're on, so... <laughs> don't get me wrong, but yeah. I think you're aware by this point, Matt, that you're not on the same planet as most of us. <laughs> 
Yeah, but I did see it in a multiplex. I got to throw that. I, I definitely saw some movies in some bizarro theaters in Atlanta as well, but. <laughs> Tom, do you have any any big topics you want to hit on this movie while while we've got you here? Well, I mean, my overall take on the movie, aside from just how much I love it, is that it's essentially a a completely ridiculous movie. I was looking through those notes that you made on it um, and thought, firstly, very funny, uh, very funny observations. But you're you're absolutely correct. There's lots of silly stuff in this film. It's not on the face of it a serious movie at all. But it's elevated by, I mean, firstly, production value. The fact that for some reason Sony gave them $100 million to make this movie, for reasons we're still not clear on today. Um, two, by the fact that it's self-consciously ridiculous. It isn't a film that is taking itself that seriously. It's designed as a satire, primarily, even though it has all these other elements. It's an action movie, a war movie, a romance, a horror you know, it's blending a lot of different stuff together, but it's fundamentally a social satire of a sort. And also because it has depth and layers, not in the characters and the performances and not even particularly in the uh, the plot as such, but more so in all of the little hints and nods that it's making to its audience saying, this is like every other, you know, military-sponsored war movie you've ever seen. But at the same time, we're completely knowingly taking the piss out of that. We're actually sending up these sorts of war movies, but in a movie that look otherwise looks like a standard war movie. And to do that is quite brave and clever and unusual. And I think that's what a lot of people missed. A lot of people saw it and either thought this is actually a pro-fascist movie, which it isn't, or they saw it and thought this is just patently ridiculous this is just a kind of a bad sci-fi movie and it kind of is both of those things on the surface but as soon as you start digging into it and for all of the people who did get it the first go round they were like no 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 you you were somehow watching a different movie to just missed all of these different things that they rather obviously slapped in there to tell you what they were really doing and some of that is stuff that you can't expect an audience to notice like Verhoeven has borrowed shots from films like uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, the famous Nazi propaganda film. Um, in fact, that opening with a big crowd and the I'm doing my part, that whole sequence effectively is shot in a way that's just like a sequence in Triumph of the Will. Um, there's stuff like there's a, big, a bit on the screen where the lettering says, why we fight, which is a reference to the Frank Capra series of films in World War II, which were all made with the Office of War Information and were basically selling World War II to the American public. And I'm not expecting most movie audiences to spot these things, but I would have thought they'd have noticed just how hyperbolic most of this film is and realised they were doing this deliberately. They were trying to produce quite a strong reaction in you so that you'd stop and think, hang on, what uh, why am I reacting so strongly to this movie that's essentially about a bunch of people shooting giant bugs? It's essentially a silly, stupid movie. It's because there's so many more layers and so much more depth to what they were trying to do that it does induce strong opinions and strong emotional reactions in people. And 
yeah, that's where I'm coming from with it. I guess um, one thing that Verhoeven does really well is what you're just saying, kind of wrapping all of those totally in the same moment. Because um, we talked earlier about uh, Dizzy's death actually having some emotional resonance. But at the same time, we have the ridiculous, gory effects and the fact that they just to- you know, yank that claw out, which seems like the worst possible thing mm-hmm. you could do at that moment. <laughs> I mean, if you want someone to bleed out, that's what you do. Well, and mere moments before that, they have Michael Ironside's character get injured and like, you know what to do. And it's, yeah, he wants just to be shot and put out of his misery. <laughs> but he sounded badass, right? So, well, yeah. well he he didn't have he didn't have time to reconsider that decision anyway. So, <laughs> that's like they got the best half of them. So, yeah, and, you know, they, the recruiting officer that has missing most of his limbs at the beginning, right? He could be that guy. Yeah. The um, I'm interested because RoboCop again is extremely obviously satire, but did that one go over people's heads on release as well? Certainly not like Starship Troopers. Yeah, did. I feel like everyone kind um, of got it. I don't know if ev- if everyone quite got it so much as they enjoyed it more. Um, I think yeah, Robocop when such... it's doing the obvious thing is still very fun. Yeah, sure, sure. But also the central character you do actually empathise with, where it's very difficult to empathise with Johnny Rico because he's kind of a complete idiot who turns into a sociopath. Yeah, I guess um, Robocop was more of a victim, whereas Johnny just is pretty fash. Mm. Yeah, our trio of heroes at the end are, are, are not people you want to hang around. Well, yeah, that uniform that Neil Patrick Harris was wearing, like I said at the start, <laughs> he looks like the SS. <laughs> yes. And he's like, he's just like, hey, yeah, I send hundreds of people like you to their deaths every day, but, you know, man's got to do what a man's got to do. <laughs> he's only following orders. Actually, he probably makes the orders, though, doesn't he? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but no, 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 I think a lot of people did recognise that RoboCop was satire. And again, the ending of RoboCop is somewhat uplifting. It's about this man who is converted into a transhuman and then rediscovers his humanity and his, to some extent, his identity throughout the course of the movie. Obviously, it's about lots of other things as well, but that's kind of RoboCop's arc. That's Murphy's arc. And so at the end of the movie, he calls himself Murphy. He's kind of got his self-identity back. Whereas the protagonist in Starship Troopers starts out with a degree of humanity. Like when Michael Ironside asks him in the classroom, you know, do you believe this thing about that, you know, violence is the ultimate authority and that citizenship should only be granted to those who wield military power? And he doesn't know. And he's not really that sure. And there are some other little moments of regret or grief or something that you might empathise with. Whereas by the end, he's a totally tub-thumping, kill-em-all, doesn't-care-about-anything-but-the-war. And that's not a character you can really identify with or that you really want to see him succeed in the way that you want to see Robocop succeed. So I think... Part of the reason for the differences in the responses to the two movies and why a lot more people recognised Robocop for what it is, is that arc of the central character being quite empathetic in Robocop and not really at all in Starship Troopers.
we should take a moment to men- just get into uh, that the book is, which I have not read, but has a reputation for basically being pro-fascist, where Verhoeven did something well, completely different with it. Do you know who else hasn't read the book? You? Verhoeven. Verhoeven. <laughs> he said he got two chapters in and it was boring and fascistic, so he asked the writer to tell him the story because he didn't want to read it. That's yeah. pretty much how I went about this book, for better or for worse. <laughs> I know, I've read lots of science fiction, but I don't know. For some, I guess I like Verhoeven's version so much, I don't really want to go back to that one. <laughs> I am interested to read it now just because, because it sounds like it does do all these things very earnestly and not take like satirically. I'm interested to see how Verhoeven's done this and what he's taken from the book and what he hasn't. Also... Apparently, the book is one of the first instances of um, Max, and I do like Max. Mm-hmm. Oh, Max. Okay, okay. At first, I was thinking of Mexican food there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the, the book was how the American public discovered tacos. <laughs> <laughs> I believe tacos were created in Texas. No, nachos. Nachos were created in Texas. Of course, tacos weren't. Sorry. <laughs> You mean the one where you just put cheese on chips? I'm not surprised that was invented in America. <laughs> um, I was going to say, I actually have read the book uh, oh, really? years ago now. Um, and yeah, to be honest, it's a fairly straightforward militaristic sci-fi story. It isn't very interesting, um, but it is quite popular. Uh, for a while, it was actually required reading of military officers in the US Armed Forces, which well, fuck. is... S- <laughs> Slightly worrying, um, you might say. But yeah, yeah, it is a very militaristic, authoritarian, you could call it fascistic. I am, um, I mean, it kind of is. I guess that's up to people to read but the book that, and, that's and decide a whole for themselves. branch of sci fi that a lot of people are like, um, all the Warhammer stuff. People get really into that, but it's mm. that's all very fascist. And some of it, some of it is a bit more ironic about it, but then a lot of it is very earnest. And we should probably say that Heinlein himself explored quite a lot of different political ideologies in his writings. He wasn't like writing lots of books as an advertisement for fascism. He was more exploring what might these more extreme political ideologies look like in a, you know, 500 years in the future or something. Yeah, and that is um, what a lot of sci-fi does. So... I certainly don't have a problem with him writing the book, however much I might criticise the underlying politics of it. I, I still do think, you know, he's got every right to write that book. And he wrote other books looking at certainly kind of more radical left-wing ideologies and how they might yeah, play I've out in hundreds of years' of his, time. I've read some of his other books, and I, maybe that even is like what keeps me from wanting to read this one. <laughs> well, like, George Orwell wrote 1984, but we're not saying that he himself was like in support of Big Brother. Not at all. not either, I, I think. Well, but, but by, by <laughs> the, the end of the book is, I love Big Brother, so... <laughs> I, th- I read it ironically. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think you're meant to, but it's like just saying that you can, you know, by writing about these ideas doesn't necessarily mean they're your ideas. Not everyone is Anne Rand. Sure, sure. You can explore something without endorsing it. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing that surprised me that this film is 1998, um, it feels very post 9-11 in a way. Yes. Like, there's definitely a read of this film where, like, the asteroid was an inside job. Yes. 
<laughs> of course, you could put a Pearl Harbor on that as well, right? So, I mean, there is a precedent, but yeah, for us, nine eleven would be is now the one that would be more obvious. I suppose, yeah, without release, maybe you would have just seen it as Pearl Harbor instead. Yeah. Interesting. Well, when it comes to that asteroid, um, there is, of course, absolutely no evidence in the movie that it is the bugs that send the asteroid. And in fact, it makes absolutely no sense for the bugs to send the asteroid because they live on the other side of the galaxy. So unless that asteroid is moving faster than the speed of light, how would it ever get to Earth? Yeah, they'd have to send it through a wormhole or something. That's Or have yeah. like the best aim in the universe to yeah. hit a planet from across the galaxy. Um, it's just assumed... You know, it's just assumed that it is the bugs that are guilty and, and that we have to mobilise and go to war and all of that stuff. But no one ever stops to actually ask, hang on, where did this asteroid but, come yeah, the, from? Um, the concept of taking a terrible incident like that and using it to justify basically a mm-hmm. war of extermination of all of your enemies, whether they were involved or not, uh, that was a pretty accurate prediction. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was after 9-11 that the film underwent something of a rehabilitation and people went back and watched it and thought, ah, this is what they were talking about. It's this post-9-11 world that we're now living in that starts to feel more like the movie. And, oh, that's what they're satirising. They're sending up that very uh, belligerent, nationalistic, fearful kind of society that just turns to violence because it can't cope with problems in any other way. And um, I mean, yeah, I did actually post a, a shot of it's the uh, the wreckage shot of Buenos Aires after the asteroid is hit. Right. When the guy's like that, you've got the homeless guy and his dog has been buried under the rubble and all of that. Uh, I posted something about that on Instagram and said, you know, I'm not saying this movie predicted 9-11 and the whole post 9-11 world. But, you know, um, and actually one of the people who liked that was Casper Van Dien. OK, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he just like us, probably rewatched the film that he was in, obviously, um, after 9-11 and thought, ah, yeah, yeah, this is astonishingly relevant. Well, one thing um, which the film predicted about the post-9-11 world is the idea that um, just being in the military automatically makes you a better person. Mm-hmm. The, the whole point of the film is like, you know, you're a citizen if you've, you know, defended your country. And there was that big wave of like, you know, the troops are heroes. Don't look at what we're doing. Don't look at what we're fighting. Just automatically, if you're in the military, you're a hero. Just support our boys. Um, I remember, mm. I think it was in a Richard Dawkins book, so forgive me for that. But he wrote, there was a chapter where he's talking about, um, he vis- visited a church before um, the war in Iraq. And they had, they were saying, like, oh, we don't want to fight this war, protesting it, leading marches. And then as soon as the war was declared... They took down all of that signage and put up support. And they're like, well, you know, now we're at war. We've got to support our troops. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's a big... I, I know there was... Um, I know there was at least a brief glimmer after, right after 9-11 where I was like, oh, I should join the military, probably from seeing all the movies, right? right. <laughs> but uh, I, got, I got over that pretty quickly. Yeah, had, I, had I not <laughs> been 11-year-old, I might have been the same. Right, so... But, you know, I was... I was I had, I had punk rock concerts to play, so it didn't happen. <laughs> but nonetheless, a lot of people did. A lot of people did. I I have veterans on my podcast, uh, or, and you know I've spoken to others and and whatever been on their podcasts, what have you. And yeah, a whole bunch of people. In not like a whole generation at all, but nonetheless, hundreds of thousands of people did sign up in the wake of nine eleven. 
because they thought this was a righteous fight. This was a fight that needed to be fought and needed to be won. And I think you'll find an awful lot of them, um, if you like, are now Starship Troopers fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it almost doesn't... It's a pretty universal theme. Verhoeven couldn't have made this after 9-11, so it's, uh, I guess he has a, a little, not predictive programming sort of thing, but he just has a prescience, right? He uh, hmm. smelled the right wave and made the movie when he could, and it, it worked out quite well. Well, yeah, I mean, so he, in that way. He, predict, he very accurately predicted the sort of militarized, privatized police force. Oh, yeah, yeah, in, in 10 years earlier than this, right. So <laughs> um, his films in general, yeah, they just... He's a good filmmaker. They seem to gain in some resonance, and, and Starship Troopers probably gained the most from he's that. Just, he's got that cynical European look at America while simultaneously being very good at making American films. <laughs> yeah, which is probably why he's basically been kicked out of Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he kicked himself out to a certain degree as well, but, you know, you got to have standards, right? But yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't kicked out, but he was told, no, 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 stop that, make films like we want to make. And he said no. Um, we should probably be wrapping up soon. Does anyone have anything else so they want to get off their chest on the Starship Troopers? I just want to talk about how cool all the bugs were. <laughs> oh, yes, the monsters. Yeah, but yes, this is the end of our monster month. we got to do yeah, that. Yeah, so um, the the main ones, just the the sort of, I guess you call them like the foot soldier bugs, they're a really unique design. Very memorable, mm-hmm. that, that big like forward-facing mouth and then the feet underneath. Um there's actually is a monster in Monster Hunter explicitly based on those bugs, the uh, Shogun Senator. And then you've got the big beetles, which almost look kind of cute until they start melting people. And then the brain bug is very... Um... <laughs> yeah. Lovecraftian? No, I'm... <laughs> I'm trying to... Brilliant you know, what's the... What's the vagina equivalent of phallic? <laughs> <laughs> Volvic? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Particularly when you have that censored bar at the end when uh, Neil Patrick Harris is jamming things into it. Yeah. It's just okay, I don't know where this puts me by. I, I always I always I saw I always saw it was the other end. That's what the brain bug made. Oh, me thought think it was of. a butthole? Yeah. Oh yeah, it could be. Okay. I mean, it's, it's pretty... It's got a lot of eyes, too. So, yeah. you know, neither of those things have eyes. But it's, it's also... It's a little bit cute. <laughs> Especially when it's afraid. Yeah. Oh, that was... When he's like, it's afraid, and they all cheer. Yeah. <laughs> no, that is one of those moments where you think, how did people not get this? <laughs> that, the, that the triumphant ending to the film is basically that they're dragging this wounded brain bug... <laughs> out in a net they find out that it's afraid and a a crowd of thousands of people cheer as though this is the most amazing accomplishment ever (laughs) yeah we we struck fear into a quivering animal (laughs) (laughs) yeah the one the one that the the monster the bug that made me had most ill at ease this time were those little cockroach ones that uh come out briefly and then run scurry back in the cavern i don't know why maybe i just don't like cockroaches but as we all know, the real monster is man. You know, you know what scene made me most uncomfortable? You know, those kids were just stomping on the cockroaches. Oh yeah, those were perfectly. What they do? They how they round them up like that? Oh, yeah, okay, put some put some bait out, I guess. That that yeah, was, that looked just... way too real. So I'm kind of 
upset if it is the fact that they just got some kids to stomp on real cockroaches. <laughs> I didn't keep an eye out in the credits if there was the no animals were harmed message. Well, and I also wonder if they hired uh, any entomologists because that is actually something... I mean, insects turn up quite a lot in Hollywood movies in various forms. And I actually, for my most recent book, I interviewed an, an entomologist who has been a consultant on dozens and dozens of movies. I don't know if they hired one for Starship Troopers, because I'm not sure if any of these bugs are actually based that closely on real insects. Um, I mean, I know a couple of them look just like real insects, but then they've made them much larger and given them flame powers or plasma shooting powers or what have you. Um, I don't think those bugs that they were stamping on were real. I don't think you'd be actually be allowed to do that. Um, I think you'd get into quite a lot of trouble. Even though they are, you know, insects and most people find them very creepy and would happily kill them in their own home. Um, on a film, I'm not actually sure you can depict it, but you can't depict real bugs being killed. You can kill as many fake bugs as you like, like with anything else with Hollywood violence. You can sort of be as violent as you want, as long as you don't actually harm a real horse or a real dragonfly or whatever. So favorite monsters from this one? Favorite bug, I should say. What's your favorite... I think it's that's, it's that's just the the main arachnids were definitely my favorites. They're just such an iconic design. Yeah, I could probably go with that. But I did, did like the uh, lava, the magma uh, beetles. Those are fun too. Oh, the, the scene when Johnny killed it was very cool. And if it, <laughs> if you're just like taking away all the satire and subtlety and just looking at it as an action movie, that was a cool monster kill. Mhm. Mhm. Although they th do then. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Matt. It's I think it's those giant plasma bugs are probably my favourites in the movie. And it does always make me laugh the way that they nuke them, blow them up, and then immediately run straight towards the area where they've just set off a nuclear weapon. <laughs> um, with no concept of, you know, radiation or fallout or any kind of problem like that. It is just this this wonderfully stupid moment that... Yeah, totally. Like the real military. <laughs> Don't worry about us dying. The fleet just does flying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's that mentality is so obvious in that moment that it just it makes me laugh every time. Well, I don't want to grab, uh, I know it's getting late in your evening, so we probably should wrap up, but Tom, you have a lot of, uh, <laughs> you got a great book to read. You have a, a pretty impressive uh, website. Can you tell the folks a little bit about what you do? Yeah, sure. I mean, my website, which is where you can get most of my work, is spyculture.com. And for the last several years, I've been using it as both an archive of all these different files that I've managed to obtain from archives and from uh, FOIA requests and other things, all about the government involvement in the entertainment industry. So if you do want to know how it is that the FBI or the CIA or Department of Defense, Homeland Security, all of them are involved with making films and TV shows and how they rewrite them in particular, what kinds of changes they make, what they take out, what they put in. There's a huge amount of information on there now all about that. And that's broadly what we cover in the book, National Security Cinema. Um, I also run a podcast called Clandestine, which you can, again, find on the site, where I do cultural reviews, I do investigations, I sometimes look at historical stuff, I explore spy stories. It's quite a broad podcast, but the main thrust of it, like the main thrust of the site, is about, you know, uh, government propaganda, if you like, in, in Hollywood. Um, I actually have a another book coming out, but it's not coming out until next year, where we are exploring how all of this influences the superhero genre. So how NASA, Department of Defense, the Science and Entertainment Exchange, and other 
you know, government and quasi-government agencies are involved in shaping superhero films. Because I'm very out, interested to read that one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, partic- please drop us a line. We'll do a superhero. Particularly upset at <laughs> sure, the fact sure. that Spider Man is now a child soldier. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, but th- things like that, you know, these themes are there in superhero movies and they've become the the biggest movie genre on the planet. And there's actually quite a lot of contrasting politics and social ideas and values and what have you in these different films. It's not like they're all shamelessly militaristic or all, well, anything really. They're not, some of them are more, if you like, liberal than others. Some are more conservative than others. There's a lot of different stuff going on in there. Um, and in particular... I'm getting sidetracked, but this is kind of in your ballpark because you mostly look at sci-fi films. Um, In particular, the chapter where we compare NASA's influence on Hollywood with the Department of Defense's on a few different films and how this plays into the future image of things like Space Force versus the more uh, peaceful and scientific exploration of space as embodied by NASA. And those two are quite conflicting agendas and how that plays out in you know, their their ability to influence movies, I think is quite fascinating. And to be honest, I'm very much on the NASA side. You know, I think our future in space should be as peaceful as possible. But clearly... Yeah, you're talking becoming... to a pair of big old Trekkies, so we're definitely... Yeah, one. exactly. Uh, but, but classic Star Trek is very much like this. It's all about characters who use innovation and diplomacy and discovery and other, you know... P- non-violent human talents in order to overcome the various problems that they encounter on their adventures. And it's great, you know, great sci-fi. But even Star Trek has now become a story about spaceships blowing up other spaceships. Um, If you look at, you know, Star Trek Picard and Star Trek Discovery, it's like, this isn't the same show. This isn't the same set of values. What's happened here? What's, you know, why is the sci-fi genre taken this weird militaristic turn But at the same time, you have films like First Man or The Martian, uh, TV series like uh, For All Mankind um, that are very much NASA-sponsored. Interstellar's a good one. Uh, Yeah, again, all NASA-sponsored projects and all have a different set of values, a much less violent and militaristic set of values lying underneath them. So it's very much, you know, this is a phenomenon that very much influences the sci-fi genre. Um, So yeah, I think you would be into it. And if anyone else, you know, is into this kind of thing, yeah, check my site out, spyculture.com. So far, I've only read your Verhoeven chapter, but I did like it. So I'm going to go back and read the rest of the book and can recommend it to our listeners. Please do. Please do. <laughs> I've read it. I liked it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, just quickly on the Trekkie side, because I, I keep telling Luke this too, but um, lo- the Lower Decks animated one kind of does get ni- a bit more of that nice optimistic vibe from older Trek um, if you want to have a look where they're not just blowing each other up <laughs> uh, I've not seen any of it yet but okay, I'll take your word for it sure yeah. sure. it has it has the worst trailer but you start watching it's it's, it's pretty good so um, <laughs> as for us um, we're concluding our month of all monsters here and Luke why are we doing monsters so much? Uh, because I've just relaunched my Monster Hunter podcast and I wanted to plug it <laughs> dozo so uh, yeah if you want to hear me talk about monsters from the monster hunter video games you can find that podcast at monster mash pod on twitter or just search monster mash podcast on facebook apple podcasts google whatever Uh, if you want to follow this podcast you can find us on twitter at mlsfs pod please do follow us and get in touch because the numbers tell us people are listening but we never hear from any of you and if you've liked the music that you've heard during this podcast you can find matt's music at rovingsagemedia.bandcamp.com.
All right, so let's, uh, Tom, again, thank you very much for having a chat with us today. So uh, for him and the dear listener, what, what shall they do, Luke? They should go to war! Oorah! I wrote that like two times in my notes before they said it. <laughs> it's a very oorah film. It's a very oorah film. <laughs> Next week, The Highlander.